0: I am so thankful that we have somebody like Brian serving in the Navy there alongside of these courageous people who are serving our country. And man, it was so inspiring to hear from Brian. So again, let's pray for Brian today before we get into our sermon today. God, we just thank you so much for Brian and the ministry that you've given him, his eagerness to share his testimony, and just to serve you, God. It's such a great example for all of us. Encourage our hearts with that, help us to embrace that idea. But we do pray for what Brian asked, God. We pray that his schedule would stabilize. And I know in the military, a lot of times that's a hard thing, but god we just ask that you would give him consistency in the people that he spends time with and in the environment that they're in and that that environment would be conducive to relationship to having good meaningful conversations about who you are and the things that you've done your love for people and uh and that you just give brian opportunities to continue to serve his peers and um, God to just make an impact in their lives in tangible, meaningful ways that communicate your love to them, that he would then have an opportunity to speak truth to them as well. So we're so thankful for Brian and we pray for your blessing on him and his work and in his family. And we pray in Jesus' name by your spirit. Amen. Well, do you know the name Jean Valjean? He is the main character in Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables. And Jean Valjean, at the beginning of the novel, is a has just been released from prison after nine years in there, and he is a dangerous, angry, uh, disillusioned individual. He ne- he wasn't always like that, though. The grind of being in prison the coarseness of the other prisoners the brutality of the guards the desensitization of just being another number in the system wore away at him over the years but when he had gone to prison it was for a good reason he had just been stealing bread in order to feed his family he trying to meet a legitimate need through illegitimate means but Shortly after the novel opens, Valjean encounters compassion and kindness unlike anything he's experienced. He's looking for a place to stay and a country priest is the one person who will allow him in his home. Valjean rewards the priest's kindness the next morning by stealing all of his silverware. And as the police catch Valjean and then bring him back for his reckoning to the priest, Valjean has this encounter with absurd grace when the priest tells him that he had given the silverware to him and why didn't he take the candlesticks along with them? And Valjean is just radically transformed in that moment because of this grace that he experiences, this mercy. And it changes his life for the next several years as he, inspired by this, now is generous to other people and cares for other people. But the misdeeds of his past still chase him. And until he deals with that, until he accomplishes justice, he is not free fully to be who he's supposed to be, what the purpose of his life is supposed to be, to freely give himself away in the way he's meant to. Well, we're continuing our series today, What Were You Thinking? We've looked at the Bible, God's special revelation of himself that he's given to humanity. We've seen who God is and the fact that he exists as Trinity, three in one, last week. And today, we look in the mirror. We look at who we are as human beings and how we deal with this problem of sin that we are born with. And so, as we jump in, we're going to look at Genesis 2. We're going to go right back to the beginning. This is one of two accounts about the creation that Genesis gives us. This one focuses in on the pinnacle of creation when God created the man and the woman. And so, we're here in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's such a beautiful picture. It's so poetic, this initial setting for man Uh, there are a few more details in the next paragraph here but we'll jump down to verse 15 to keep the narrative going the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we'll come back to this part about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a few moments. But I want you to see how astounding this is. In verse 7, as God creates the man, up to this point, the whole creation has really been God speaking and things appear. There's been this detachment from it, but now when God creates the man, he scoops up this dirt, the elements, the very same elements that make up the dirt, he forms it and shapes it into this man, and then he breathes his breath, his spirit, his pneuma, his wind, the breath of God into the man, and it gives him life. It animates him. It's like divine CPR brings life to humanity. There's this personal aspect to it, and it's such a beautiful picture. It, it should remind us of Jesus when he is healing people throughout his ministry on earth, the intimacy with which he breaks the barriers between people. He touches them as he heals them and puts his spit on their eyes and they and, and gives them his spirit eventually, the breath of God coming in and empowering the man to live. Well, he, God also creates this beautiful environment. Man is a finite creature. He's going to get tired. He's going to need fuel. And he's he's going to need to be replenished. And so God provides for all of that. There's all the food that the man will need right here in the garden. But he's not only concerned about his belly. It's not all practical. There's an aesthetic sense of all this too. And in, in verse 9, the the trees that are good for food are also pleasant to the sight. And so there's this artistic sense to how God does these things. It's not just to feed the belly. Well, in, in verse 15, we see also that here, before sin enters the world, when things are good in the creation, work exists. Work is a good thing. God gave Adam work to do. He's to tend the garden, and he's to look after these animals, right? and the work is a good thing because it's a way for adam to serve god it's a way for him to relate to god and and to provide service in obedience to god's command and, and to represent god in this area that he's working to take care of god's stuff so to speak and his stewardship of the animals is part of it and it includes naming the animals, really taking charge of them. So we have kind of the first scientific classification system that comes about here. But despite all of these things, work being good, the animals, there is not a good companion for the man. It's not good for him to be alone. And this is such an important idea for us. It's not healthy for us to be introverts and recluses and loners in life we see at the very beginning of the creation even a relationship just with god is not enough if i can risk maybe approaching a blasphemous comment there to say that god is not enough for for the man he needs a helper suitable for him he needs a peer somebody who is the same as he is god is infinitely other they can have a relationship but he is still not the same as the man even though the man is created in his image And so, God provides graciously this helper, this companion, the woman, and he does it by taking a very piece of the man. There's this equal footing in how she's created, and she is flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and so there's this uh, certainty that the man is going to take care of this woman and care for her. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, where he kind of elaborates what all this means for marriage, that... A man doesn't hate his own body, he's going to nourish and take care of his own body and that's exactly what he'll do for this woman here. And this is so important for us to see this kind of dignity given to a woman here at the beginning. Our our culture, our humanity for ages has been bad at taking care of women. We've disrespected them, we've diminished them, abused them, brutalized them. And that's never been God's intention, that there is this mutual respect and equal footing, and then this profound unity that they're naked and not ashamed with one another, that there is this oneness that they have that really is not approximated by anything else here on earth uh, in our relationships with one another. Well, if we look back at genesis 1 this is the other creation account and this is the one that's chronological it goes day by day and it winds up on day six at the pinnacle of creation with man we looked at this last week as we looked about who god is Uh, but in verse 26 god said let us make man in our image after our likeness And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So one important observation before we say anything else about these few verses, do you see in verse 27, God created mankind male and and female there's no gray area there's no third transgender option it's male and it's female nothing else and there's a very good reason for this this is important it's part of God's larger purpose it's because the man and the woman have a unity of purpose that neither one of them can accomplish on their own what God intends for humanity what he intends for his creation and that's for the, for the humans to fill the earth, to multiply and fill throughout the earth, and then to rule over it. And that's the purpose, and it can only happen through biological reproduction. That's how they will multiply, and that can only happen with a man and a woman. It just doesn't work otherwise. So they're to fill the earth With God's glory and with his rule it's it's not some kind of domineering rule and again this is a problem that we as humans have had throughout history that we mistreat other human beings we mistreat the creation we take all the resources for greedy reasons and leave destruction in our wake and that's not God's design that this is a compassionate responsible caring kind of rule that they're supposed to enact over the earth. Well, there's this big issue here of God's image as well. God creates man and woman in His image. And we looked last week at what that means from a relational aspect, that like God in His Trinity has this mutual, self-giving love, this unbreakable, infinite love, this social relationship that mankind likewise has this relational aspect, and it's central to who we are, and it's part of our image in God. We see it in the relationship between the man and the woman, uh, but this this is just who we are to be. We're not to be loners. But there's another aspect of God's image as well, and that's rationality, that mankind is unlike any other organism on the planet, that we have this ability to plan, to strategize, to hypothesize and predict, and then to enact our plans, and then to evaluate, to analyze, and then to remember, to create a storehouse of knowledge that we pass on to the next generation. And this is part of our intellect, and it mimics the character of God, the image of God in the way he has created the earth, the way he superintends the earth. Another aspect of us being created in God's image is that we have a soul. We have this spiritual element to us that connects us to the spiritual realm. It provides our identity and our personality, uh, this unique character of who we are as individuals, a soul. And so as God creates us in his image and and tells us to multiply and to fill the earth, the whole idea is that we are to be these image bearers throughout the earth. We are to be a visual reminder of God's rule and his character. Wherever you go, when you see one of these little human beings walk around, it's supposed to make your eyes go heavenward to the God who put them there and whose image they bear. So we have received a glorious, invaluable heritage in how God has created us. This is astounding stuff as we look at this. God sees humans as the pinnacle of his creation. We're very good and it has nothing to do with our own merit. It's simply because of God's grace. And that actually makes it all the more sad, all the more shameful when rebellion and sin come into the world in Genesis 3. Now, in Genesis two sixteen and 17, God gave a warning to the people. He told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, they would die. And so we'll see how all this takes place here in Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So as we see the entry of sin into the world, there are some circumstances that lead to this here, and it all begins with the temptation from the serpent in verse 1. He casts doubt on the command that God has given to these people. And we can see the woman's confusion as she deals with this doubt, In verse 3, she adds to the commandment of God. This is something that we have done throughout the ages, that we don't just rest in the simplicity and the perfection of God's commands. We want to add so much to it a lot of the time and have these legalistic commands. So she acknowledges that they shouldn't eat from this tree, but she also says that they shouldn't touch it. Well, God never said anything like that. Of course, Satan doesn't bother to correct her. The serpent doesn't bother to correct her. Uh, he just continues on, but he now directly contradicts God. It's a it's a direct affront. He, he says, surely you will not die. And what's really sinister here is that he's speaking truth when he says this. It all comes down to what's meant by death. The serpent is saying, yeah, this isn't clutch at your neck, keel over, and die right away physical death, the death God was talking about is much more significant. It's spiritual death. It's the death that occurs when these image bearers choose to not do what God told them to do, when they choose disobedience over obedience. And they break that image that they've been given. And so, there's this spiritual death that comes in and it's all because Satan pits the woman's desires against God's command and her willingness to obey him. And the progression that that we see here in Genesis 3:6 is similar to what 1 John 2:16 tells us about how sin kind of percolates and then uh flourishes in our own lives. This idea that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life lead us to sin and this is the progression this woman goes through paul tells timothy in first timothy two fourteen that the woman was deceived and that's because we we understand that it was the man who got the direct instruction from god not to eat this fruit we don't see the woman hearing that directly from god and so the way she would have heard this if she ever did at all was through adam And so who knows whether Adam made the mistake about touching it or didn't faithfully pass this on or just what happened. But what we do know is that when Adam takes this fruit and eats it, he knows where it's coming from. And he's heard from God what he should be doing. And so this is open rebellion for Adam. The impact of the sin here is far-reaching. Immediately, these two people lose their innocence. And their eyes are open to a reality far beyond the good and the perfect that they've experienced up to this point. They have shame because of their nakedness. And with this inadequacy, they try to use their own invention to cover up their shame. There's guilt now. God comes to the garden and they're used to being confident in his presence, having open access with him. But now they don't want to be in his presence they can't be in his presence because that fellowship has been broken his holiness can't have sin in his presence and and they know that they have this guilt not only is the relationship between them and god fractured but the relationship between man and woman is fractured when god asks man to give an account for what's happened he immediately blames the woman and the woman can't be forthright with god she has to blame the serpent when when he asks what's happened we uh We don't see any kind of sense for repentance here when wrongdoing has taken place. There's no apology, and so these are broken, flawed, sinful human beings now, and in response, God curses the serpent uh, who we understand to be Satan uh. There's the curse upon the woman, and we see part of this is going to be that her desire will be for her husband. This isn't a good thing. It means that she's going to want to own him. She's going to want to tell him what to do, but he shall rule over her. So he's not going to respond well to that, and he's going to want to dominate her. Some of these things that we talked about earlier, it's not going to be healthy in their relationship. And there's work is now going to be marred because of this rebellion that work will not be pleasurable, it will not be fulfilling for man to to go and do these things that he has to do to to feed himself. but the the creation itself is now cursed as well. the animals, the ground, this is far reaching consequences of the rebellion here. We see in Romans 8, Paul talks about that the creation groans and suffers the pangs of childbirth. and That's part of the creation taking place. We see also that there is going to be this enmity between mankind and between the serpent. And again, we understand the serpent to be some kind of manifestation of Satan. And so Satan is going to be this ages long enemy of humankind he wants to own us he wants to destroy us and he'll do everything in his power he's the accuser and so everything looks pretty bleak here man is cast out of the garden there's a flaming sword put up so they can't get back in and so now these people who are to go fill the earth they're supposed to go to every corner of the earth to reveal God's glory, well, now they've been restricted from a section of the earth. They can't do what they've been called to do. And in verse in chapter 4, when we see their child Cain kill their other child, Abel, Cain, because of this disunity, the discord that's taking place because of sin, because of the division caused by this murder, now he moves away from the family and there's more restriction in the way that these people move throughout the earth. and. It's getting harder and harder to fulfill this divine purpose that mankind has to fill the earth. And this sin issue now enters into the DNA of humanity. It's going to become hereditary to the point that David in Psalm 51 will talk about being conceived in sin and born in iniquity. And that we have this tendency, no matter what we do, no matter what we try now, no matter how much we try to cover up our failings and try to uh, deal with evil in our, in our own terms, it's like Paul writes to the Romans in, verse, in chapter 7 when he says, the good we want to do, we can't do. That we only can do evil even when we try to do good. And so we see that our instinct for rebellion against God mars his glory in us. And the story of humanity after this is really pretty dark and shadowy with just a few points of light along the way. Things are pretty grim until the Messiah comes on the scene, until he floods the darkness with light. When we see this fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where he will come and bruise the serpent on the head even as he's bruised on the heel when he dies on the cross to pay for the sin of humanity. This is why we refer to this as the gospel, the good news, because all was lost and we have no recourse to deal with our sin. We are now cursed, we are condemned before God, we've earned sin, we've earned death because of our sin, and now we have to be punished because of that sin through death And this is the lot that we have in life. We have no way to get back to God on our own, but he provides the solution in Jesus. The solution doesn't come from us. It's only through faith in Jesus that we can be brought back into relationship with God. And what God does then is he gives us new life and we return and even exceed what this original design for humanity was we see a picture of it in Romans 6:10 through 11 for the death he Jesus died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus he is our way back to this original design for our humanity. Now we can return to God's intended design for humanity through faith in Jesus. We're free from our natural tendency to sin. We have power to resist sin and overcome temptation. And more proactively, now because of God working in us, work is again good. We have good work to do, and we have God's Spirit living inside of us, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, to enable us to do the work God's called us to do. And actually, this is, a, this is what we'll be talking about in our next sermon series, Empowered, we'll be uh, going through in the next year here, this idea that we are, we are free-fueled and fitted out to flourish, as we walk by the Spirit, as we live out our calling in the Lord, that he's taken our desires and our passions, which under sin would lead us to sin, but he's redeemed them, he's sanctified them now so that our desires and our passions become ways for us to relate to humanity and for us to have joy in living and to reveal who God is to the world around us. Some of the things that transform now because of this redeemed humanity that we have, obviously our relationships to one another, so central to us being image bearers. And now we have this spiritual link with the spirit inside of us, with our salvation in Jesus. We have this spiritual link to one another, and that's no more important than in in the church, our most important relationships that we have with anybody, where we're linked spiritually with each other. And now we have unity in diversity, like we talked about, just like there is a, within the Trinity, right? All these unique individuals, but one within the church. And we see also in the marriage relationship how it's transformed by Christ's example of self-giving love and self-denial. And so we have mutual submission now within our marriage relationship and Remember, the whole purpose of humanity was to multiply and to fill the earth, and so now in redeemed humanity, it shifts. In the old way, in the original creation, it was biological reproduction that we talked about, and that was the way that... God's glory would fill the earth. But now, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the church, we don't see that emphasis on physical reproduction. It's about spiritual reproduction now. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, Jesus says, right? Spiritual reproduction. And so this transforms the role of marriage in the world. And We now have a freedom whether we marry or we stay single. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 how it's an advantage to remain single. It's not to say that marriage is a bad thing, but marriage just has a tendency to distract or occupy us because a married person is concerned about their spouse and then the kids, you have a household to run. And sometimes those concerns don't take you further along in God's mission, but the single person has all kinds of capacity and availability to relate to the people around them in a way that the the married person just doesn't have. So we have this tendency in the church a lot of times to try to marry off the single people in our, our midst, and that's not the best thing. We need to encourage our single people And just as we would encourage anybody in our church, let's take best advantage of the resources God's given us so we can make disciples. Let's do what's most strategic and helps us to be most fruitful. And we see that single people are like the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers, that they can get the work done faster than all the rest of us. That's what Paul tells us. And this is all because now it's spiritual reproduction that's god's vehicle for filling the earth with his glory well one other impact of this redeemed humanity that we have is that we have this ability to grow and improve we'll talk in a few weeks about sanctification which is what this really is this idea as we work out our salvation on a day-to-day basis, we discover who Jesus is more and more day by day. We get better at making disciples. And we are moving toward an end goal in all of this. Paul shows it to us, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are incrementally becoming more like Jesus, and the Spirit is in the midst of all this, making this happen. But it's not just some passive thing where we aren't involved. We, with fear and trembling, work out our salvation, Paul tells the Philippians. And at the same time we do that, it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Colossians 3.10 says... Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We can grow and improve. We renew our knowledge. We change how we think. We put off our old self and its practices. We embrace our new self and create new habits. And this is all part of us becoming more and more like the one human who fulfilled God's design, Jesus, the one human who became what we were all intended to be. And so as we think about what what this all means for us and how we put this into action, God's plan for human beings was that we would display his glory on earth. But the stakes have raised now with Jesus coming into the world and there's this mystery that Paul talks about that there is something that god is demonstrating now in the heavenly realms as well to demonstrate to the dark powers that exist out there god's glory and his excellence and his righteousness and so we are a part of that whole thing history is moving to to an end point of jesus filling all in all we see that all throughout the scriptures we saw it last week in colossians 1 Jesus fills all in all. Everything will bow its knee before him. And we, as followers of Jesus, are his fullness. We are his ambassadors in the world. We are his representatives. And so we are to fill the world with God's glory through faith in Jesus. So imagine just for a minute, if we lived out our full redeemed humanity, Think about what that would look like if we loved people without reservation or without restraint, if we could put aside our fear of rejection and our insecurity and just loved people in big, outrageous ways, like God has loved us. Imagine if when we spoke to people, we just overflowed with excitement and joy about the work God is doing in our lives. And we were able to, to talk about it in a natural way and just like we're talking about our best friend. It just because we have this moment-by-moment moment walk guided by the Holy Spirit that we're daily seeking and encountering Jesus, becoming more like him. And we're just so excited to share that with people. It just flows out of us. And imagine for a discouraged, weary jaded, disillusioned world if they saw the uncompromising love and unity of who the church is meant to be. Imagine how attractive that would be and what a beautiful picture, what, what a rest that would provide to a weary world if we were the church that God designed us to be. God has given us this amazing design for who we're to be as human beings. So let's be that, and let's pray and ask for his help. God, we thank you and we praise you for your plan for humanity. God, for how you have overcome sin through Jesus. And as soon as sin entered into the world, you immediately gave us the promise of the Messiah, the one who would bruise, the serpent's head, even as his own heel was bruised. And God, we just thank you for Jesus, and we praise him as the human who lived out your purpose and your calling for all humanity. God, thank you that we can be who you meant us to be in him. I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord God. Guide us by your spirit. Help us to hear and obey. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.